Hi, I'm Dr. Janice Morrow. Thanks for joining us for another episode of American Mood Swings, where we talk about the brain and all things related to mental health. Welcome. Uh, hi, everybody. I'm Dr. Janice Morrow with American Mood Swings, and today's my guest is Sherry Botwin. Uh, she is a licensed clinical social worker who's been practicing for 25 years in uh, Ch- Cherry Hill, New Jersey. She has a pretty extensive background. Uh, she has a master's degree from Rutgers University, and um, she wrote a book a couple of years ago where she's also just finished oh. another book, but she has a book here called Thriving After Trauma, and I hope everybody who listens to this uh, takes a look at this book. It's a really powerful resource tool uh, for those who want to reclaim their power um, after, after, being, after dealing with trauma. It's full of good tips. She also, she just wrapped up, uh, she's been shooting a podcast with Judge Rosemary Akalina. It was called Warrior Women Speak, and it was all kinds of, just, it was a tool and it was a great resource. So they've wrapped it up, but there are still three three seasons out there on the internet that you can check out on YouTube or check out this podcast if if you're interested. So uh, welcome, Sherry. Thank you so much for being here. Thank you so much for having me. Uh, well, we're very excited. So, uh, oh, I, I also forgot to mention that, you know, I, I always like to have a little bit of human. Uh, Sherry is also a cancer survivor, as a, as am I, uh, a couple years ago. And she has a beautiful son named Andrew, who it sounds like is a sports enthusiast. So that means her a lot of her weekends and probably evenings are tied up. <laughs> I'm guessing. Yep. Yep. And uh, she makes herself widely available for news and media outlets and shows like this to uh, spread awareness about healing from abuse and trauma. So we're just going to like kind of jump right in. There's lots of of different trauma. There was a a very high profile case about a year ago with a gal, a young woman traveling with her boyfriend named Gabby Petito, who uh, she was doing a road trip visiting the national parks and she ended up, they were she was traveling with a very abusive boyfriend and it was, you know, pretty, it was out there in the media and everybody was watching as she, they event, she had been killed and then her boyfriend later killed himself. So this went on for a few months while they were searching for her. And every night, like millions of Americans, I'd watch this and kind of baffled, like how does a beautiful, young, vibrant woman who, you know, who seems well-loved with a nice family. How do you get your, how does she get herself in this situation? And why doesn't she leave? And why is she, and what was particularly upsetting, upsetting about this particular case that, that everybody heard about is that the police had stopped them a few, and uh, and this young woman was covered with bruises. And for people who are not familiar with that case, you know, the police stopped them. They had, they were like on the side of the road fighting or something. So people were calling the police. The police eventually stopped them. They questioned them for a few hours. She was covered in bruises, but neither of them wanted to press charges. And then later it had a very devastating outcome. So I, I was baffled and confused. And a, a friend of mine, but we want to, Sherry can kind of, give us, you know, she has a lot of background in this, like the questions that we all ask, you know, why, you know, we'd like to, I'd love to ask you about, there's um like the abuse cycle, I, from what I've read, there's phases of abuse and how do you recognize when you're in an abusive situation? Now, take the floor. <laughs> I think one of the issues with the Gabby Petito case was that 
they were in a very toxic relationship. And when the police pulled them over, one of the things that struck me was that if you're going to work in law enforcement and your job is to keep the public safe, you need to understand the warning signs of things like domestic violence. So when I saw clips of the two of them, Gabby and her boyfriend, and the interaction of Gabby and with the police and, and also the her boyfriend and the police, to me, it was very obvious. Somebody who's trained in this and has, does this for a living, the warning signs were there that there was something really wrong between Gabby's affect and being so upset and, like you said, covered in bruises and sort of making it like it was her fault. And then you have him who's downplaying the boyfriend and sort of acting like there's nothing wrong. So for me, that was the most striking part of the case, that it's one thing to be in the abusive relationship and not know you're in it, but to have law enforcement be able to intervene and not be able to make a difference in a case like that. I thought that was heartbreaking. They probably knew in their heart this girl is in trouble. But are they legally like if, if if the people involved are saying like he's saying it's there's nothing going on and she's saying I'm fine this is all my fault can the police if if they had recognized this as domestic abuse do they have the power to like take people like basically against their will and say we're removing you from this situation we're taking you in we're going to call your family do is that even legal or do they have are their hands tied I think it depends on the state that you're in, to be honest with you. But I think in that situation, there was evidence that there was assault that was taking place, whether it was her assaulting him or him assaulting her. What needed to happen was that they needed to be separated, taken down to the police and that their families needed to be called so that there could be an investigation. I think this was a situation where they were able to make a difference, the police, and they chose for whatever reason, they chose not to. And I think, again, some of the issues when it comes to things like domestic violence and law enforcement, there are amazing law enforcement out there that are trying to serve the public and protect and serve the people. But then there are also people in that field that don't believe things like domestic violence occur. So I think it really just depends on the person who's pulling them over and the state that they're located in. So this to me was a case that went very wrong. And it's it's really, it's a, it's, it's one of the worst cases I think of domestic violence because we all watched it unfold on television. Anybody who's been assaulted or in a relationship where they've been abused when they watched those clips were so upset and so triggered by what they saw, by the questions that were being asked to both Gabby and her boyfriend. There's so much that hopefully people will learn from that situation. That's what I'm hoping, that there's a lot of important lessons that come out of a story that's so awful. Well, I, I, I hope so. It, it brought me back, you know, like 25 years when I was, you know, when Nicole Brown Simpson was killed um, because I, I think I was a, yeah, I was, I don't even remember how, how old I was, but I remember being shocked to hear that he had been beating her up for years. There were years and years and she had even had photographs in a safe deposit box because she thought, and she had said, if I'm ever, he's going to kill me one day. Like, no one believes me. Nobody believes he does this to me. And I, it was so shocking, like, that when, that people aren't believed without, like, a physical proof until it's too late. 
Um, one of your podcasts that I watched uh, or listened to, you guys talked about the three phases of abuse and how do you recognize like would that you're even in abuse? Is there a lot of denial from people like that just don't even recognize like I'm being abused here or, you know, there's there's usually denial among both people in the relationship. And there's also a lot of denial that comes with the family members in the relationships. For instance, in this situation, I don't know anything about Gabby's parents, but what I have seen a lot is that when 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 the daughter or the son goes and tries to talk to their parents or their best friends or somebody that they're in a close relationship about the relationship, they're often questioned or made to feel like they are the crazy ones. Mm -hmm. So I think what happens is people don't want to believe that loved ones or people in relationships can be treating each other with such disrespect and such disregard. So it's easier for people to deny the truth because then no action has to follow. And I think, again, that's for people who are perpetrators, the survivors, and also the loved ones. A lot of times just people don't want to believe that this is something that is happening. I guess it makes me also think of Bill Cosby. I have to be honest with you. like, And we can go into that because I, I read that you were there, you know, uh, Initially, because I was such a huge Cosby fan, like millions of people, and I'm like, oh, all these women, you know, they were willing participants. But as as the numbers grew and, you know, in my heart and soul, and there was just overwhelming evidence. But I guess when when you have these two side people, we don't know what's really, you know, behind closed doors or what's going on. But all, most of those women, many of those women, there's still a lot of people who to this day don't believe them and say that it's right. right. I think what happens with people in the public, when you have a public figure who's so adored by so many people, people thought that Bill Cosby was the person we saw on the TV show or the comedian that we watched entertain us. So I think when these women started coming forward and sharing horrific stories, they didn't want to have to think that somebody that they looked to as like a father figure or someone who entertained them could also be somebody who was so pathological. I, I can tell you that when I sat in the courtroom, what I witnessed was a very different person than what I saw on television. One of the one of the benefits for me of being able to be present in that trial in the courtroom was that I could actually watch the pathology of a predator right in front of me. So to be able to sit and look at his mannerisms and his affect and his denial throughout the trial was something that was very striking to me. And it was one of the reasons why I decided to write Thriving After Trauma, because I feel like it's important that people understand the pathology of a predator. They're usually not all bad people. They usually can be very charming, likable, on the outside appear very different than how they act behind closed doors. I can tell you that at the end of the trial, when he was found guilty, I remember walking back to my car and bursting into tears. I was so so full of feelings. I couldn't even drive my car. I had to call friends and just talk about the sort of like the fallout and the impact of listening to all those women tell the same story over and over and watch him sit in that courtroom and smirk and chuckle and laugh. And it was enraging. And it was also very liberating to be able to witness a jury of 12 people all say the same thing that we find this person guilty. It was the first time that I really believed that society is getting to a point where they're starting to believe survivors of sexual assault. And for me as an advocate and also a survivor, that was extremely 
important and it was a pivotal part of my career. Uh, can you talk about um, grooming, like for people who, who don't know what it is and just common types of grooming, you know? So grooming is a process that happens over time. I think one of the reasons why so many people deny that abuse happens is because they don't understand the way it occurs. For instance, Dr. Larry Nasser, who was the Olympic doctor for hundreds of gymnasts who were competing on Olympic and collegiate levels, what he did was he saw these, these young women week after week, sometimes multiple times a week. In the process of grooming, you what he did and what predators do is they start to make you feel like you're important, like you matter. They start to make you believe that they care about you. And when you're talking about people who are vulnerable, you're talking to young women or young men, people who have backgrounds where maybe they're not always feeling accepted or they feel they have a lot of pressure. When you begin to trust somebody in, in a position of authority, whether it's your doctor, your parent, your teacher, that's the process of grooming is being able to convince people that you are a good person, that you have our back and that you're here to protect us. So what happens is by the time the grooming has taken place, that's when the predator behaviors start to come out. And at that point, it's too late sometimes for people to get out of that situation because they've already developed a bond, a feeling of trust and connection. So that's where the cycle of abuse starts and where it can be perpetuated and continue to happen over the course of weeks, months, years. I don't know the details of that case. Did Were women coming forward for years like where they, because I know that they, in the past with Bill Cosby, some of them had come forward and then they were like paid off. There was a, before it ever went to trial and, you know, there were settlements made and, and it was kind of brushed to the under the rug. Was that happening with Larry Nassar or what was the triggering event that led to like the floodgates being open? I, I don't recall. From what I've learned about that case, there were women that came forward when uh, back in the 80s and 90s and they were reporting acts or behaviors that were abusive in nature. And what happened in that case is people brushed it under the rug, just like they do in many of the situations when you hear about cases in colleges where there's coaches or teachers. This is unfortunately what happens. Somebody comes forward and they do what they need to do. They speak up, but then there's there's pressure and there's people who say, you can't report that or you can't say that because you're going to ruin his life or you're going to ruin your career. So in almost every case that I have followed, the R. Kelly case, which is another case that I'm that I just testified in a civil case about, his victims were some of them were not that much younger than me. So this this started happening in the 80s. He just was sentenced to prison a few years ago. So this is pretty common. It's very common. And, and usually with predators, there's decades of abuse that will go on before finally justice is, is served. I'm glad you brought him up because I had forgotten all that, but I, I was such a big R. Kelly fan. So it was very, uh, well, you know, I love his music. I think he's talented, but um, this horrific, regardless, you can't, you can't, I, I'm glad he is where I'm glad that these people finally had a voice. And I didn't know maybe people in the music business. I, I had never heard any of that till just about what was happening with the young girls held against their will. And, but it was also fascinating because a lot of them, seemed from what I read and heard, like stayed with him. Their parents would be trying to get them out because they were minors. And 
They're like, I'm staying with him. Uh, maybe it almost seemed, it made me think of a movie from like 30 years ago. I think there was a movie, what do they call it? Stockholm syndrome. Mm-hmm. When you kind of start, mm-hmm. is that, am I, is that the right word? When you start it, having empathy for your abuser? Mm-hmm. And it's more like a cult. You're, you're brainwashed and you're made to believe that this person has your best interest at heart. And again, a lot of these women were young and they were wanting to be breaking into the music field. And some of them were having problems in their families. And for them, some of that, for some of the women, not all of the women, but for some of them, it was an escape from abuse that they were suffering in their biological families. That happens a lot too. People who grow up in dysfunctional family systems as children, often with if they're not getting the help they need, they find themselves in similar situations as young adults. So in the in the R. Kelly case, I spoke to several of the victims. Some of them had very supportive and caring and loving parents, but some of them came from families where they already were feeling abandoned, unaccepted, stranded. So someone like R. Kelly comes in who's famous and is promising and offering things about their music career. They're going to do whatever they need to do to get what they want. And they're at the time convinced that this person is trying to do good by them. They don't realize how bad the situation is until they get out of it. Wow. I I remember um, a few years ago, I, I ended up watching uh, a couple of the Michael Jackson documentaries on HBO. And uh, what, what, I mean, all of it was hard. It was very hard to watch. There was a lot of evidence, you know, and they had been paying people off. But the way that he groomed these young boys and, and their families... Um, there, were, I had so many questions, but I remember that there was one boy and he was little. It was almost like when he got tired of him, he was pushed aside for somebody younger and new. And and he was just a little boy. I don't know. He had been like the one of the recipients of the affection and, and the attention. And then I guess when he got tired of him, he moved on. But his feelings of being discarded and how it was very it was just emotional and hard to listen to little boys and how powerless you would feel. Um, so, so what are some things? So if somebody recognizes, okay, I'm in an abuse, I really need to talk to someone, a couple, uh, what are some things that someone should look for in a therapist? Because not everybody has experience, you know, in, in all these different things. What, what are, you mentioned it in one of the podcasts, but I'd like our guest or anybody watching this to So I think it's really important when you're recognizing that you're in a toxic or abusive relationship and you're at the point where you want to get help for, you want to look for a therapist who doesn't just say they're trauma-informed, but you want to call the therapist and ask to talk with that person for 10 minutes and talk a little bit with that therapist about what kind of cases have you worked with? Have you helped people escape from abusive situations? Do you have specific strategies that you use to help people heal from things like domestic violence. I think the word trauma is thrown around very loosely. And I think that when it comes to finding the therapist, anybody can say they're trauma informed. One of the things that I do when I look for a therapist was I looked for somebody that I felt like was going to hear what I needed to say and be authentic and trustworthy and, 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 genuine in their approach. So I think that's also really important. But I think if you're somebody that's trying to leave an abusive relationship, the first thing you might want to do even before you get a therapist is seek shelter and make a plan to leave the situation. I think that's very important. 
a lot of times people say things like, why did you stay so long or why didn't you leave? But I think what people don't understand is a lot of us, when we're in abusive situations, we may be financially or emotionally dependent on that person. So you can't just get up and leave. Many people have children, pets. There's so many things that you have to consider. But I think it's really important when you're at the point where you want to get a therapist that you do your homework, that you do background on that therapist, look and see if that therapist has done any any publications, any research, any podcasts, listen to what they have to say and trust your gut. If you have a bad feeling about that person, don't call that person. If you have a good feeling, you think this is somebody I think I might want to reach out to, you, you reach out to that person because you have nothing to lose. What are your thoughts on, you know, I know telehealth became very popular and it kind of seemed to democratize things a little bit for people that don't have health coverage, you know, and insurance and even people that have health insurance. A lot of the time they don't cover therapy. What's your opinion? Like for me, I, I would much rather talk to somebody in person if it, I guess during COVID we couldn't. But now, I, I mean, for somebody, let's say, out there that doesn't have insurance and so because therapy can be expensive. What what are some you it sounded like you had started a group of survivors, kind of like a group therapy. And I'd love to hear more about that because I was really moved by that. It seemed mm-hmm. like that would be people would be. Yeah. Yeah. What are your thoughts on accessibility for people out? So teletherapy is something that was created more widely during COVID. And I think for some people, it has been extremely useful. There are people who are living in unsafe situations currently. And when you do teletherapy, the advantage is, is that you can go to a park or you can go into your closet or you can, I've had many sessions with people in their cars and it's a way to get therapy without having to get to therapy. So it's definitely more accessible. The problem with teletherapy, I think, is when somebody's at the point where they're no longer in the abuse and they're wanting to heal from the trauma, being on a video in therapy, I think that there's there's some disadvantages because you're not sitting in a room with a therapist and having that face-to-face contact You may have things going on around you that could be distracting or even triggering. So I think it's it's a hard question to answer because there's many ways to answer the question. But I do think if you're somebody that's currently living in a situation where you don't have a way to get to therapy, you don't have the money, your partner or your parent or whoever you're being abused by is saying you can't talk to somebody, teletherapy would be the way to go. Because if you have a phone and you have access to the internet, you can communicate without having people know that you're doing it and it can be much more affordable. So I think it's sort of like a, you know, it depends on the situation, but I think the fact that it's out there and that people can go to therapy, whether it's on a video or in person, more people are going to therapy now, which I think is really good. I think that's really important. It definitely, see. it is really moving to see more and more people talking about it openly and, um, high-profile people, entertainers. I think last week there's a singer uh, named Louis Capolta. He's pretty popular right now. And I, I didn't realize, I, I've heard his music. I didn't know much about him. And I didn't know that he suffered from Tourette's. But I think in the middle of a concert, he was having a panic attack and just literally kind of like couldn't say one more word. And he shared this with the audience. So they finished the song for him and he canceled. But it gave me goosebumps when I heard about it. Like the, that the crowd, he's like, look, I have this thing 
anxiety issue. I, I can't, when I get an attack, I'm frozen. And he canceled the rest of his tour to focus on his health. And I, it just powerful. <laughs> and that, that must've been a beautiful, you know, but to, to be so vulnerable and share that, like I have Tourette's and this is what's happening to me right now. I had no idea the man, you know, suffered from that. Um, you mentioned a safety plan. So, uh, that was interesting, the safety plan, because when I was listening to the podcast from you, um, I didn't, there were things I, like, I wouldn't have even thought about, like clearing your search history on the computer, you know, maybe changing bank accounts, a safe deposit box, all these things. Like, I guess if you haven't been in that, like you just mentioned, it can be difficult. Um, so there's, there's so many, you know, we have limited time today. There's so many kinds of abuse and trauma. Um, are there some, I, it sounds like from your book, there are certain emotions though, that everybody like who's all trauma survivors. And one of them being shame. I'd love to go into like, you talk about shame a lot and shame attacks. So let's, let's delve into that a little bit. Shame is a feeling that you, that people struggle with when they've been made to feel like a horrible person, when they've been made to feel like it's their fault. So it's one of the most detrimental emotions that people are left with during and after any type, most types of trauma. It's one of those emotions that when you don't address it, it can turn into things like an eating disorder or turning to things like drugs and alcohol to try and cover up the feeling. I think shame is the feeling that keeps people the most stuck. And it's the feeling that keeps people in patterns, sort of repeating the same thing over and over again. So what I've learned about shame is it becomes the obstacle to healing because we can't reclaim and move through other feelings. If we're only allowing ourselves to get in touch with the shame, we more stay stuck. And that's when people go into feelings of despair and start feeling hopeless and feeling like they, their lives don't really mean anything. So it's probably one of the most important emotions to address when you're in your healing, you're on your healing journey. And it's something that I think is widely misunderstood as well, because a lot of people don't even know what the word shame means. It seems like I, I had a childhood friend We've known each other since we were kids. She had four daughters. And then just a few years ago, her daughter's in the military. So she had finally went to therapy. While she was in therapy, she expressed that her stepdad had molested her for years. Mm -hmm. And there was so much she didn't want to break up the family. So my friend, of course, when she was sick when, and how could I this go on? I had no idea. He didn't touch the other girl. So and it definitely broke up. I mean, she immediately threw him out, filed for a divorce. You know, it got very ugly, of course. And the the reason they had to report it, I guess, when because there were minors in the house, she had been in the military for like nine or ten years. She's in she's in her thirties now, but there were still minors. So then they just basically showed up at the house and said, "This is what what's happened." And my my childhood friend, um, it was just very. But the dynamic, all the things that you said, I mean, the shame because now the family. The other three daughters loved their dad. He never touched them. They were all questioned, and he was so like I didn't even understand that. It, it, it just, but the whole it was a big mess, and and they're still dealing with it. All these feelings of guilt and shame. So one of the things that I learned in your book that I, I didn't realize that so many people with eating disorders that that it, it sounded like that was just one of the many coping strategies to trauma. So you mentioned. 
a few different things that people do to cope. Could you elaborate on that? Like the self-destruction, addiction, the disassociation, the things that people cope before as a way to handle things or just. So people not, not consciously, but unconsciously people develop different strategies to try and survive whatever it is that's happening and try not to have to feel their feelings about it. So people who are, dealing with different types of traumas often resort to things like eating disorders to try and keep all of the secrets buried in their unconscious or buried in their body. So these self-destructive coping mechanisms are a way to bury the experience, but also a way to try to comfort and distract from whatever emotions they're having during and after. So it's very common. The statistics are very alarming, but what we are seeing is that for example, over 30% of women that check into rehab for eating disorders are reporting childhood sexual abuse in their history. And when you look at the statistics with substance use disorders, up to 80% of the people checking into those types of facilities are reporting surviving some type of trauma, whether it's combat, natural disaster, or sudden loss of a family member. So these vices become a way for people to not have to deal with their feelings. And for some people, it's a way also to keep their memories and their experiences secret until they're ready to look at what happened, whatever it is that happened. I'd like to talk about, uh, I want to go into the, uh, some of the treatment tools that you use, but before that, like, like the cognitive behavioral for someone who's not familiar with that at all. And the diet is a dialectical behavior therapy, mm-hmm. but one, a very timely topic um, that is consuming me even as a 57 years old woman are the weekly mass shootings. It's, it's happening so much, so often everywhere. And it it makes me as an adult think, I don't know if I really want to go to that concert or a ball game. And there's, it seems like almost after every mass, a really bad shooting, I'll start having thoughts like I can't handle living in a country where there's a week. (laughs) Maybe I'll go to Australia or Italy or somewhere where, because it doesn't seem like it's going to change anytime soon. Our country is very divided with gun laws and accessibility. I don't see the shootings like slowing down anytime soon. It seems like it just gets worse. So as a therapist, like I'd like to know if you've dealt with the mass shootings and like what can people do like for their kids mm-hmm. so that they're like, are they going to be scarred for life? Is there any, like, do you send them back to school? Like, for example, there was the shooting in Texas where all the, the really little kids like a couple of years ago, um, where I think they were kindergartners in first grade. And I, I can't recall, I don't even know, like, did they just close the school down? Do they send them back to the same place? Or do is it better to just move them? Where is that environment? So many questions about the mass shootings and your thoughts on this. I mean, in that case, I know they did not go back to that particular building, but I think how do you integrate something like weekly mass shootings into normal daily living? The reality is, is that we are living in a world now where there are acts of violence happening every day, multiple times a day. So the challenge is how do you, how do you deal with it and how do you talk to your kids about it? But how do you still keep living at the same time? So one of the, one of the things that happens in my life, because I now have a a little guy who's about to go into seventh grade, it has come into my community. There was a threat of violence at one of the schools where we live. And then there was also a threat of violence at the school where my, where my little guy goes. So I think being able as parents to talk to our kids about 
what steps, what steps the community takes to make sure that kids are safe and also recognize that right now it's in the news a lot, but the chances of a mass shooting happening in this particular town where we live, this, the chances are pretty slim, but the, but how do you explain that when it's on the news every week? So I think it's about figuring out how to talk about it, how to be open about it, but also how to not let that type of trauma stop us from living. I can't imagine being a parent at one of these schools where one of these shootings have taken place. I can't imagine working through that type of trauma on some level, on some level I can imagine because I know what has happened is some of these parents have taken their tragedy and they've gone out into the public and tried to change gun laws and talk to schools and reached out to other parents. So I think one of the things that I focus on when I work with people who've been through trauma is how can we take a situation that's so unimaginable and so horrific and how do we find ways to live with it, especially if it's impacted us personally. So that's one of the things that I pay attention to. I don't pay attention to how many how many people were killed or what, how many shootings were there. I try to focus on the parents and the members of the community who are out there advocating for change and who are trying to help. I know that with all these mass shootings, like for instance, the some of the survivors from Columbine, they reached out to the people that went to Marjorie Stoneman. That's nice. So that so that's some some of what happens is when people can come together, form support networks and and education, that's a way to help the community and the kids feel safer and to deal with the reality that this is something that may not end anytime soon. I wondered, like, as a parent, if your kid just says, I can't go back there, I just can't Mm -hmm. go back to there. Like, do you listen to them? Do you work through it and say you have to go back there? Or do you say, okay, we'll we'll move you. Uh, Another case that happened just this last year right before i'm sorry all these heavy depressing things but well it was it it got so much media attention there was these four young college students killed in idaho you probably heard about that and that happened just before thanksgiving so they were going out on break i think they had to come back to take finals but if i had been there i mean i was scared for them and i was all the way in hawaii i was you know watching this unfold every day like how did these how do you go back to that campus? Well, until they caught him, they didn't catch the guy for several months. But as a parent, like, do you have, do you say, how much time do you give them? Like if they say, I I can't go back, I want to do homeschool. Do you say, okay, we're going to homeschool you. Or is it, is it more traumatizing to say you have to go back? I can't homeschool you. Any thoughts on So I think it depends on the case. I think it depends on the person. This is one of those things where there's not a right or wrong way to do it. I think if your kid is having mental health issues, if your kid has already been in a situation where there's been violence, you may not want to send your kid back to that campus, but then there's going to be other kids who are going to want to go back and say, I can't let what happened take away will take away my right to continue to get my education and be with my friends. There was a, there was a shooting at Michigan state. I think it was in the winter. And uh, one of the things that I thought was very striking was the, the college came together and they had a game against Michigan university. So the beginning of the game, they take a minute to acknowledge 
at a basketball game, they take a minute to acknowledge what had just happened on the campus because they're rivals. Michigan and Michigan State are not generally, they're not friends, but in that situation, they came together. So I think you ha- there's so much you have to think about when you're trying to decide, how do I handle the situation? How do What do I do when my kid says, I don't want to go back there? You never want to force somebody to do something that they don't want to do. But sometimes just being able to voice your feelings and talk about it and work through your fears and figure out how to keep yourself safe and get support, that can make a difference in in, a, in the lives and in the choices that we make when it when it comes to do we go back or do we not go back. Um, since you have a seventh grader, has he, ex- I know kids are, you know, for the, they can be very resilient. Um, is, does he express what do the, does he talk about? I'm, does he even hear about what's happening in our country with the shootings mm-hmm. or does he ask you about it and seem scared at all or not too scared? I would say yes to every question you just asked, <laughs> meaning because they're so exposed to social media and they hear about all that's going on the topic comes up quite often and it comes up in a way that sometimes he's very scared and other times he talks about it as if it's normal. So it really just depends on how close the story is, whether it's something that's happening here where we live versus it's something that's on the news, but kids are talking about it. Some kids are making jokes about it. Some schools are very on top of the seriousness of it. And if a student even alludes to mm-hmm. any type of violence, their 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 parents are call, called and they have to go home. And there's a whole process, an investigation, a whole process that the schools are now taking to figure out, is this a serious threat or is this just a kid who doesn't know how to deal with his feelings and is making insensitive comments? So I think that when you're a parent in that situation, you know your kid better than anybody and you know what your supports are. So you need to figure out what to do with your kid and with the supports around you. Because again, there's no right or wrong way to handle this stuff. It's very individualized. What are some good things to say when somebody finally opens up and shares with you, whether it's a friend from school or work or says, I need to talk about something. I've I've been sexually assaulted or I am dealing with this. these. Any thoughts on this? I think really be mindful of what you're asking. I think any 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 sentence that starts with the word why, you don't want to you don't want to ask those kind of questions. Why questions are more shaming and blaming. I think if you're a support person or a friend, the best thing you could do is listen and maybe ask that person, how does it feel to talk about this stuff or do you do you feel like I hear what you're saying to really really support the person in their bravery and sharing. You're not there to figure out the why, the who, the when, the what you're there. If you're a support person or a friend, you're there to listen. You're there to not offer advice or tell, tell that person what to do, but let that person know that you believe in them, that you're there for them and that you hear them. So it's more about affirming them, not about asking questions. Those are questions they're already asking themselves. Survivors ask themselves a million times a day, things like, why didn't I leave sooner? Why didn't I tell somebody? Why did I this? Shouldn't I have that? We don't need people to ask us questions. We need people to tell us that they believe us and that they hear us, because that's usually what helps people to open up is knowing that 
not that somebody is sitting there saying, I believe you. I believe that what you're saying is the truth. I'd love to talk about some of the tools that you use now that somebody has come to you. And after a while in the start opening up, you mentioned, and and I've seen this before too, but I'm not real clear what they are cognitive. For someone who's never heard the word cognitive, behavioral therapy, dialectical, some of the tools that you might start implementing when you're working with patients or clients. Yeah. So what I try to do is a combination of letting the person share their story, tell their story, and also offer different types of interventions when somebody is stuck in shame or guilt. So things like CBT. CBT is a form of therapy that helps us figure out what we're thinking and how that changes our behavior. So if somebody is saying things to themselves, like I'm a horrible person, it was my fault, I deserve this, What CBT does is it's a strategy where I will say, you need to try and talk back to that thought and change the way you answer that thought. Because again, the thoughts that we have dictate our choices moving forward. So it's the process of healing is about telling your story, understanding the impact and thinking about what you want to have in your life be different moving forward. And also learning how to move into a place of self-compassion People who go through trauma are usually consumed with self-hatred, guilt, shame. The last thing they think about is, well, I I went through all that. Now I need to do things to help me heal. They're usually more thinking things like, well, how do I lose more weight or, or how do I not feel that pain or how do I like not get hurt again and how do I make people leave me alone? So it's really about moving into a place, finding different strategies that help us rewire our thinking and change the way we look at our experience, especially for people who are traumatized as children, recognizing that children are not equipped to protect themselves or defend themselves or change the way an adult is treating them. Children cannot do that kind of stuff. And people who are in domestic violence, people like Gabby Petito, when she's the victim in that situation, she's disempowered. She doesn't feel like she has any way to get out of the situation. So really helping people learn how to not continue living their lives, feeling trapped, held hostage and without choices. Uh, is CBT the same as dialectical behavior therapy? Are they are they similar? Completely different. How what's that technique like? So DBT, di- dialectical behavioral therapy, is more geared for people who have very strong emotional reactions. So somebody who has a tendency to lash out or explode. What that type of strategy does is it does you don't just intervene in the thought. You actually develop different different mindfulness ways of responding to the anger. So teaching people how to sit with the anger, how to breathe through the anger, how to make make better choices. So it's more about mindfulness. CBT is more of a thought, restructuring the thought. So when I think of DBT, I think it's like a more intensive intervention and it's very useful for people with trauma histories because most trauma survivors are walking around with tons of anger and pent up rage and shame. So trying to talk back to your thoughts is not usually enough. You need more than that. Well, as one of the big takeaways I got from reading your book, and I guess I it might sound really naive, I just didn't realize how important it was for people to talk about it. Like 
And and again, you mentioned you you discussed the the Bill Cosby trial in detail and how important it was for these victims to have their say. And mm-hmm. and and in in a podcast I listened to you with you and the judge, I I just again she was the first one right, right to let every victim in the less Larry Nassar trial speak who wanted to make a victim. I didn't realize like how healing or cathartic. And if you could just share a few thoughts on that. And then we can kind of wrap it up with like your, if there's anything else that I left out that you'd really like to share, we can always have another discussion. Um, But I'd love to hear about your new book that you're, you're just finished. But yeah, let's go into the importance of vocalizing it and, and everybody having that right to say something. I think the most important part of healing is being able to tell our stories because our stories are, for some of us, years in the making. Every time we tell our story, we learn something different, something new about ourselves, our experience. It's not so much about people fixing it or saying the right thing. For people who are trying to work through trauma, just being able to say, this is what happened to me. This is how it affected me. There's things that I talk about in my 50s that I didn't even know in my 40s. And every time I say something about or I talk about my story, I write about my story, or I sit with clients who are telling me their story, many of them repeat the same stories over and over. But usually there's different things that I learn about them as they talk about whatever happened to them. So I think that's something that I think is not maybe so understood by the public, the importance of speaking and sharing. The reason I decided to write my next book, Stolen Childhoods, was because there is so much that happens for children when they go through different types of abuse. And one of the biggest takeaways for me in my 20-something years of doing this work is that when people start talking about what happens to them, that's when change happens. That's when healing takes place. And it might be when you're 25 that you start talking about your history, it could be when you're 50, it's never too late. And there's no such thing as telling your story too many times. There's no such thing. We all have a story. Every single one of us has a story, but how we understand our story changes over the course of time. And the impact of our story also changes as we move through our lives and we become parents or we become therapists or we go for a job promotion or we fall in love for the second time. So there's no such thing as your story is the same over and over. Nobody's story is the same over and over. It grows and it develops and it blossoms over the course of time. You shared a lot of stories in the book. There are a couple things really stood out. Like I didn't realize how long, like sometimes people are coming to see you for years before they Finally, and then all of a sudden one day you have a feeling or a sense that they're holding back. And then one day they come in bawling their eyes out and finally, I can't even imagine how cathartic that is. When is your book going to be available to the public? So I just finished writing my book on July the 1st. So I'm waiting for a release date, but the publisher is telling me very early 2024. So I'm hoping by March of 2024, fingers crossed. Okay. Um, we're about to go into production and editing. So the hardest part is over. I wrote the book and now the fun begins. And I will definitely be doing a lot of preliminary marketing, sharing bits and pieces of what I wrote about, because I, I think it's it's important and it's also very healing for me to go back and look at what in the heck I actually wrote in that book 
because when I'm writing, I don't always remember what I'm writing and what after I write it. Um, but I, I think that what I'm hoping that this book will really help people talk more openly about abuse and understand it. People spend decades burying and silencing themselves from sharing things that happen to them and the the hope and the freedom that comes from breaking the silence is the reason that I'm still here today and the reason that I do the work that I do. And that's one of the reasons why I wrote the book. Okay. Well, I'm looking forward to reading that one. Is there anything else before we wrap up that you'd like to bring up that I might've left out that you want to? I think so. I would just say if people want to find me, they can find me on Instagram. I have uh, my how do you say that? My social media handle name is Warrior Botwin Seven. Warrior so, Seven. Okay. Well, thank you, Sherry, and uh, I'll be in touch. And th- thank you. I hope you have a good uh, rest weekend and summer. You too. Okay. okay. You thank too. You. Thanks so much. Bye. Thanks everybody for joining us for another episode of American Mood Swings, where we talk about the brain and all things mental health. Hope to see you next week and please share with your friends. 